As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of Ali at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ollie at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. We're in for a real treat today because I'm speaking with Dr. Laura Evans, an associate professor of art and art education and the coordinator of the Art Museum Education Certificate at UNT. She has lectured at Ollie on some fascinating international art crimes that would make many a Netflix criminal investigation series pale in comparison. We are talking about art crimes, the theft of some of the most famous paintings in the world, and exploits by the greatest art forger of our time. Dr. Evans studied art crime at the Association of Research into Crimes Against Art in Emilia, Italy, and has a postgraduate degree in antiquities, trafficking and art crime from the University of Glasgow in Scotland. She has interned or worked at many prestigious galleries located across the world. In her research, Dr. Evans is interested in how we can learn about ourselves and others through art museum education. Wow, that sounds like something we should all learn more about. Welcome, Dr. Evans. Thank you so much for having me. It's an auspicious day for talking about art crime. I don't know if you are following the news, but uh, Franz Hall's painting from the glory of the Dutch era was stolen yesterday from a museum in the Netherlands for the third time. This piece has been stolen two other times before, so it's the mystery is unraveling as we speak. One art crime detective has speculated that it was, quote, stolen to order. So that's always very intriguing when we think that there was a criminal mastermind orchestrating a theft like this. Would stolen to order mean someone was looking for it to enhance their private personal collection? Yes, exactly. That kind of Dr. No character that uh, we see in films and on TV shows, but we've rarely seen actually play out in real life. This art detective that was interviewed uh, suspects that it was someone like that who orchestrated this theft. So we'll see. We'll keep your eyes on the news. That's incredible. It's just incredible. Well, our timing, first of all, I can't believe that. (laughs) We didn't plan it this way, honestly, if the FBI is listening, but... 
<laughs> but it amazes me in this day and age with the technology and the surveillance equipment available, it just amazes me that someone is able to do something like that. Right. Yes. It is very gutsy to undertake an art theft. We have some incredible footage of, of art thefts throughout history. Well, since I guess the invention of the modern way of capturing film, but there are some really good ones. In fact, one of the ones we're going to talk about later today, there is video of one of the thieves climbing up a ladder to a museum and then promptly falling off. So there. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> Doesn't always capture the best of the thefts. <laughs> well, I have been so excited to talk to you because I know that some of these events really rock the art world. There was a very exciting theft at the National Museum of Art in Sweden, where two Renoirs and a Rembrandt were stolen. And it is one of the most dramatic settings of an art theft that I have ever heard of. So to set the scene, let's imagine that it's Christmas time in Sweden. You know, there's beautiful snow lining the streets and you're going about your holiday shopping in the streets of Stockholm. And all of a sudden there's a giant explosion that rips across the sky and police cars start screeching down the icy streets to follow the sound of the explosion. So that's our setting. It was December 20th, the year 2000, and three men were inside the National Museum of Sweden. Two car bombs were detonated, a speedboat was involved, and three priceless works of art were stolen, which with the setting and the time of year, it kind of sounds like the 12 days of Christmas, right? So here's what happened. Five minutes before the closing of the National Museum of Sweden, a guy walks into the lobby of the museum points a submachine gun at the guard, orders everybody to the ground. Two other men are already inside of the museum, brandishing handguns. They take off the walls three very, very small paintings. Like I said, these two Renoirs and a Rembrandt. And then they dash out of the museum and don't jump into a getaway car. They jump into a getaway speedboat, which again, like this is the only time I know of in art theft history that a speedboat was used as the getaway vehicle and they escape. So I don't know if you've ever been to Stockholm, but it's a series of islands. So it makes sense that they would have been in a getaway boat. That is like something out of a movie, I have to say. <laughs> did they get him back? They did eventually get them back. It took a while. The paintings were recovered a few months later. Interestingly enough, the Renoir in specific was discovered in a drug raid, which just goes to show that drugs and arms and art are very, very strange bedfellows. And shockingly, art theft is the third highest grossing illicit trade after drugs and arms. So if a work of art that is stolen isn't able to be sold and thieves don't get the ransom that they're looking for, they'll often use art as this form of currency in exchange for guns or drugs. So we we find them together, weirdly, a lot of the time. And so after that, Renoir was discovered a few months after the theft. It took five years to finally find the second Renoir and a Rembrandt. 
And they were both uncovered as part of a sting operation with the FBI and an agent who was posing as a member of the Russian mob who was pretending that he wanted to buy the painting. um, And they ended up catching the thieves red-handed. So that's how that was recovered. Were they damaged at all? I can't imagine. They take such care in museums to keep the light, the temperature. I can't imagine a thief being able to do that. Right. I don't I don't know the answer to that in regards to these two pieces. The scream was stolen. Tell us about that. Sure. Well, it was actually stolen twice. Once in 1994 and again in 2004. So uh, which one would you want to hear about? Well, let's hear about the first one first. How's okay. that? Sounds good. This one is my favorite because it's almost... It's almost charming in <laughs> in how they executed it. It's a bit tongue-in-cheek funny. So it was the year 1994, and the site is the National Gallery of Norway in Oslo. And it was the dead of winter. Norway was preparing to be the site of the 1994 Winter Olympics in Lillehammer. All eyes were on Norway right at this time, and it was eager to, I guess, put its best foot forward. And they wanted to show off, and they have a lot to show off. And Munch is their national artist. You know, he's on their money. Like we have politicians and presidents, they have an artist on some of their kroner. So they wanted to display the scream in all of its glory. It had been for a long time on a higher floor of the museum, and they decided to move it to a lower floor so that it would be easier for visitors to access. That was one of the first of many blunders that the museum would make. They placed the screen next to a window, and that's not normally a problem, but the window didn't have reinforced glass or metal grates over the window, so it was a very unprotected window. So you can probably imagine where this is going at this point. Seven in the morning, on the day of Olympics opening ceremonies, the thieves parked a stolen car by the museum and hastily retrieved a ladder that they had left out by the museum. This was all already captured by security cameras, so we have footage of this. And there was a guard that was on duty, but he apparently wasn't paying a whole lot of attention. The thieves prop up their ladder under the window closest to the screen, and they scramble up. And this is the footage that we have where the first thief gets to the top of the ladder and then like promptly falls off and tries again, gets up to the top of the ladder, manages to stay on, and smashes the window open. An alarm goes off, but this security guard must have been napping or something because he doesn't pay any attention to it. He shuts the alarm off without going to check on it. And then the thief plucks the scream off the wall. He drops it out the window to his waiting companion. This all takes less than a minute. I think it's like 51 seconds. And then they're off in their getaway car with one of the world's most valuable paintings in their backseat. It was like comically easy for them to do this. About 10 minutes after they leave, there's another motion sensor that goes off. uh, And this is just due to the wind blowing through this open window. So the security guard finally wakes up and pays attention and calls the police. 
who were already actually running onto the scene of the crime because they had been driving around the museum and saw this ladder perched up to the second floor window and suspected something funny was going on. So the police were there. And this is my favorite part of the story. I actually feel really bad that I laugh at this. But so the police get to the scene of the crime. One of the officers races up the ladder and also falls off the ladder. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. But unfortunately, he was hurt. So he ended up having to get taken to the hospital after that. So they finally get in the museum. The other officers smartly end up going inside and up the stairs instead of trying to take the ladder. And they find a, a pair of wire cutters and a postcard. And the postcard is a painting of three men laughing very heartily. And on the back of the postcard, the thieves have written... Thanks for the poor security. Oh, that's that's just like the finishing touch. I can only imagine that security guard must have been looking for a new field of work. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. And whenever something like that happens in an art crime where the security guard is um, not doing their duty to the full extent, they often are included in the list of suspects. So I'm sure he wasn't just able to kind of slink away in embarrassment, but was probably interrogated quite fiercely. Yeah. So Norway, you know, here it is the day of the Olympic opening ceremonies. They're expecting visitors to the museum. And so they ended up taking one of the posters of the screen from the gift shop, putting it in a frame and making a handwritten sign that said stolen and hanging that on the walls instead. Oh my goodness, what a disaster that must have been for all of them, not to mention the art world, of course. I understand the British police got involved. How did the British police get involved in a crime that occurred in Norway? Good question, Susan. The Scotland Yard was involved. There was a very charismatic detective named Charlie Hill, who was a British-American man, and he had a lot of experience with dealing with art crimes, and he was very well-known. He's written a great book that I would recommend people check out that details this theft with dazzling details, and he was really well-known for playing characters in order to hoodwink people. He developed a very intricate sting in order to get the screen back. They invented all of these characters and they ended up involving the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles. The Getty was the king of private museums, right? They had a ton of money. They still have a ton of money and gotten them into a lot of trouble in the past. That's for a whole nother lecture, but they've been implicated in some shady dealings with illicitly trafficked antiquities that they brought into their collection. So that's a whole other story. But anyway, the important part for this tale is that they have a lot of money. So the fact that Charlie Hill was going to play someone from the Getty would not be suspicious to a thief who Charlie Hill is going to end up wagging around a lot of cash. And They know that the National Gallery of Norway doesn't have that kind of disposable income because the thieves had already asked for a ransom and the National Gallery wasn't able to pay it because they they didn't have enough money. So 
There's just layers upon layers in this story of interesting details. So like Charlie Hill, he has a badge made from the Getty. He has pay stubs that are in the Getty's filing system. There's all these different checks and balances so that if anyone is doing their homework on him, he is going to look like he actually works at the Getty. I, I always find it so interesting, the layers of this. And he really did his homework. So he studied the scream in great detail because if he was in the situation of having to identify whether the scream that he was looking at was the real thing or not, he wanted to be able to do that. There are actually four versions of the scream that Munk created. So just one of these was stolen from Norway. It had some candle wax drippings on the side of it from when Moog was painting it. Charlie Hill was really clued into these little things that he would know to look for if he was ever in the same room as this painting and the person in charge of deciding if it's the real thing or not. Through a, a series of events, somebody ends up making contact with a member of the National Gallery's board to let them know that they have some information about the screen that they are willing to part with. And so this begins a whole series of events leading up to Charlie Hill and his associates dressed as bodyguards and things like that interfacing with these thieves. There's quite a lot of interesting details that I won't go into now just because of time, but they do end up getting the screen back, and it was in pretty much perfect condition still. The frame had been destroyed, essentially, but the work of art itself was not in the worst condition. So that's amazing because it's a very fragile work of art that is over 100 years old, so the fact that it was okay is is remarkable. Because they did such an amazing job setting up their undercover sting operation and their undercover identities, they actually created a problem for themselves, didn't they, in terms of convicting some of the thieves? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Unfortunately... <laughs> When it came time to convict the thieves, there was quite a group of thieves in the end. So there was, uh, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, five people that were part of the group. And they were all but the mastermind were set free because the Scotland Yard detective's testimony was considered inadmissible by the Norwegian court system because they had entered the country under false names. So Charlie Hill playing this very accurate depiction of a character, so much so that he came into the country under a false passport to keep up the appearance of being this character. Well, that was the downfall in terms of convicting these felons. So because what they did was in violation of the Norwegian law, they couldn't testify? Yeah, it was a, a bit of a shocking twist there at the end. Wow, what an operation. Now, that really is something that would make an interesting movie, that's for sure. I would be the first in line to see it. I would, too. I, we can go together. <laughs> How do thieves who steal these incredibly famous masterpieces sell them? Because it seems like everyone knows they belong to museums and 
everyone would know it was stolen. Right. This boggles the mind for many. So you're not the only person wondering about this. When a museum loses one of its prized pieces, some of them have the ability to put up vast sums of money to get them back in order to pay a ransom that the thieves may ask for. Some of them don't have that. But if you do have that kind of money, let's say that you steal a work of art that's worth $30 million in the art market, and you're asking for a ransom that's $30,000. So, you know, it's a small fraction of what you would get for that painting if you tried to sell it legally in an auction. But a clean couple of thousand dollars as a ransom for a job that if we take the case of the Munk being stolen from the National Gallery in Norway, took 51 seconds. If you're able to get that kind of money for a 51 second job, that's not bad money for a very short job with not a lot of risk. One of the things I love about art crime is that usually people aren't getting killed or hurt. So there's minimal risk for a thief. Unless they fall off a ladder. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Unless they fall off a ladder. But at the same time, so let's say a museum isn't willing to pay a ransom, which is frequent because like with kidnappings, there are different viewpoints about whether you should pay a ransom or not. Some people think that you absolutely shouldn't because it just encourages that kind of behavior. So different museums have different approaches there. I mentioned earlier, if they aren't able to get a ransom or if they aren't able to sell it to a criminal collector, then they're often used as collateral. So it's laundered in the underbelly of the underworld and can be exchanged for things. So again, let's say you steal a $30 million painting and the newspapers around the world, their headline is about how this painting was worth $30 million was stolen. You're not able to sell it as a criminal. You can use that $30 million headline as a form of currency, right? To say, hey, this thing is worth $30 million. I'll trade it for that pile of drugs that you have. That relationship between drugs and guns and art is so Mm -hmm. interesting. I had never heard that before. It does make sense in how then you can use it to barter for these other things instead of having to come up with the cash. And there are even, sadly, some instances where art has been stolen and used for terrorist purposes to fund terrorist organizations. For all of the beauty that is art, it it can be used for very dark purposes. Could you describe the theft of the Duke of Wellington from Britain's National Gallery and why it was such a scandal that rocked the country in such a way? The Duke of Wellington is a very small painting. It's only like 18 by 26 inches by Francisco Goya. Goya is not a British painter, so it is kind of a wonder why England was so upset about this theft of the Duke of Wellington. And that's because of the identity of the portrait sitter. So the Duke of Wellington was known as the Iron Duke, and he was essentially the guy that stopped Napoleon. He became quite a celebrity back in his day. This was a national story because there had been a bit of a 
bidding war is the wrong word, but there had been a bit of a kerfuffle in that an American had tried to buy the Duke of Wellington. It had been up for auction. The English really don't like when an American tries to take a piece of British history and bring it across the pond. So the National Gallery was able to put up the same amount of money to buy the Duke of Wellington to keep it in England. This was already a national story, keeping the Duke of Wellington in England. And then when it was stolen, just a couple of days after it had first been put on display at the National Gallery, really skyrocketed this piece into the collective stratosphere. Oh, I didn't realize it had just gone on display before. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yep. It had just gone on display. Mm -hmm. This is one of my favorite thefts because I really like art thefts that are done for idealistic reasons. The thief would post these series of essentially ransom notes to the police after the Duke of Wellington was stolen. And the essence of them was that he would return the painting in exchange for the government paying for old age pensioners' ability to watch television for free. So in the UK, you have to pay in advance to be able to watch TV. He thought that was insanely unfair. He had stolen this painting as a way to pressure the English government into paying for poor and old age pensioners to watch television for free. So he was kind of like the Robin Hood of TV of his day and age. So this was in the 1960s. It took several years for him to finally end up leaving the painting in a locker in a train station. And then he mailed that ticket for the locker to the police and they were able to recover it. This is about four years after it had been stolen. It was totally unharmed, but it was missing its frame, which ends up being a, a key part of the story later in terms of his prosecution. The guy that stole it was a 57-year-old unemployed taxi driver named Kempton Bunton. And if you ever get curious and look up pictures of Kempton online. He's a very lovable looking guy. He does look like kind of this Robin Hood of TV licenses in, in a sense. He hired a lawyer to defend him who was the same lawyer that had defended the book Lady Chatterley's Lover in 1960 against obscenity charges. So this was a very persuasive lawyer, let's just say that. And he was able to persuade the jury to be sympathetic with Kempton Button and that he made this case that Button had only stolen the painting because he wanted money paid for free TV watching for old age pensioners and that he never had any intention of keeping the painting. And the lawyer demonstrated that it wasn't a theft per se because Button had only, quote unquote, borrowed the piece. And since Button had actually given the painting back, the lawyer argued he shouldn't be charged with stealing the painting because the painting was actually considered, quote unquote, public property because it was part of the National Gallery's collection, which is a gallery for the people of England. So it was considered weirdly public property. Kempton Button wasn't charged for stealing the painting 
he was charged for stealing the frame and he was sentenced to three months in prison, which ironically was actually a very familiar place to him because he had already been in prison before after he had repeatedly refused to pay for his television. So can you tell me how British law was changed after the theft? Yes. After this whole affair, the British Theft Act of 1968 was introduced, and it made it illegal to, quote, remove without authority any object displayed or kept for display to the public in a building to which the public have access. They made it illegal for anybody else to steal anything from a national collection. They had to fix that loophole, didn't they? Yes. (laughs) You mention in one of the descriptions for lectures that you give a connection between James Bond and the Duke of Wellington. What is that connection? Yeah, there is a connection, and I find it pretty interesting. Like I said before, the theft of the Duke of Wellington was a national story. Everybody in England at the time would have known what the Duke of Wellington looked like because it was splashed across newspaper headlines throughout the country, right? It was a source of great national embarrassment that this painting had been plucked from the public consciousness. During this time, a few years into the theft, so it was stolen in 1961, and in 1962, a new James Bond film came out, and that was Dr. No. And in one of the scenes, James Bond is entering the underwater lair of the evil villain, Dr. No. And you see a shot of the Duke of Wellington in a frame sitting in Dr. No's lair. And James Bond walks past it and he says, ah, so there you are. You know, there it is. Everyone in England, like I said, would have understood that reference. That's funny. Yeah, we kind of started off talking about this theft of the Franz Halls painting yesterday in the Netherlands and how an art detective had suggested that it might have been a work stolen on demand by a criminal collector. And these stereotypes, as we see in this James Bond example, play out in the movies, right? Because Dr. No is that criminal collector character that we so want to believe in. It doesn't actually seem to play out in real life. We don't know a lot of these criminal collectors that exist, but maybe we just aren't looking in the right places. Need to look underwater. (laughs) There you go. There you go. And the theft of Mona Lisa from the Louvre in 1911, what connects those two famous thefts? Right. They were stolen on the same day, about 50 years apart. So August 21st is an auspicious day for art theft, apparently. They were both stolen on those days. And they were also both stolen for idealistic reasons. The Mona Lisa was stolen by an Italian who worked at the Louvre and who thought that Napoleon had stolen the Mona Lisa during his conquests of Europe. In reality, that wasn't the case at all. Da Vinci had been living in France and had gifted it at the time that he was living in France. So it had come to France by legit means and not through Napoleon's hands. But this idealistic thief had mistakenly thought that it belonged back in Italy. So he stole it for patriotic reasons. 
Well, now from art theft to forgery and closer to home, as I understand it, the Texas philanthropist and oil financier who founded the Meadows Museum of Art at Southern Methodist University, SMU in Dallas, in 1965 was somewhat flimflammed by the world's greatest forger. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. This is a delightful story. I had known that the Meadows collection had some forgeries in it, but it was only recently that I was talking to one of their educators there and he said, oh yeah, and did you know those forgeries were by Elmer DeHory? And my eyes just lit up because Elmer DeHory is one of my favorite art forgers of all time. He's a Hungarian-born artist who, like most forgery stories, didn't make it by his own rights in the art world and kind of turned to forgery as a side gig and ended up making it their full-time job because they really ended up succeeding at it. That was the case with Dohori. He is just such a character. He's larger than life. He was the source material for one of Orson Welles's films, F is for Fake. Books have been written about him. Something about him was just really captures people's imaginations. So the story of the Meadows. Mr. Meadows did really well for himself in business. And like a lot of DFW oil wildcatters, we see them make all of this money and then they kind of want to show the world that they're also cultured. So that's why we have so many amazing museums in DFW is because all of these men made their money out in the oil fields and then they all kind of started to compete with one another to show that they had refined tastes. Mr. Meadows was not immune to that, and he was on a business trip in Madrid, in Spain, and went to the Prado for the first time and just fell in love with Spanish art. And so on this trip, he decided he was going to build a small Prado in Texas. And if you've ever been to the Meadows Museum, he achieved his goal. It's a beautiful little jewel of a museum. It's all Spanish art, and it is the largest collection of Spanish art outside of Spain. He really did build his small Prado in Texas. But Mr. Meadows was very much a businessman, and he really loved negotiating. And he didn't know anything about art. So he got caught up in the thrill of negotiating to buy works of art without doing his due diligence or without hiring the right people to do the due diligence for him. So he ended up getting hoodwinked pretty badly. And there were a number of forgeries in his collection of Spanish art. And then him and his second wife started collecting French art for their home. And this is where Elmer de Horry comes in. He had banded together with two other characters. Those two other characters were in charge of selling the art, and Elmer would create the art. And Elmer was very skilled at forging works of art by modern French artists, which is what. Mr. Meadows had decided he was going to collect for his home. These two salesmen, essentially, knew to go to Mr. Meadows because they had 
kind of infiltrated the Dallas art scene and had tried to sell some forgeries to Margaret McDermott, who is the queen of the art scene in Dallas at that time. And she had sent them packing, but had said, maybe you can try Alger Meadows as as a throwaway to these con men. And they rolled up to Mr. Meadows' house with Elmer DeHory's forgeries in the trunk of their car. And they managed to pull one over on old Alger because, again, he was interested in negotiating. So he didn't know what to look for in terms of whether a work of art is a forgery or the real thing. He was just interested in the best price that he could get. He was buying paintings from these guys by the handfuls and had a huge collection of works of art in his home, over 60 works of art in his home that he had bought from these con men who were peddling the work of Elmer de Hori. So that's <laughs> that's how he ended up with so many forgeries in his possession. Did Alger Meadows finally realize that they weren't the real thing? I don't know if he would have gotten there on his own, but he invited a well-known Dallas art gallery owner to his home to look at some of his French works. His name was Donald Vogel. Donald Vogel showed up and took one look at these things and was horrified (laughs) because Donald Vogel had been trained in art for his lifetime, and he knew that Mr. Meadows had been badly had. He tried to tell Mr. Meadows, and you know, Mr. Meadows wouldn't have it, and so he organized a group from the Art Dealers Association of America to come and look at Alger Meadows' collection. I'll read you their verdict. They wrote in a letter to Alger Meadows, Of the 58 items in your collection, which are viewed by our members, it is our opinion that 11 of them are or may be by the artists to whom they are attributed, and 44 are not by the artists to whom they are attributed. So that was quite the crushing blow to Meadows. You had all of these art experts in a room, and they were saying, listen, of the almost 60 pieces that you have, 44 of them are not what you think they are. Then as Donald Vogel writes in his book about it, all hell broke loose. Somebody leaked the story to the press, and then Alger Meadows was all over the news. NBC ran a story about how he'd been duped in the New York Times, and it's even reported that Princess Margaret had quizzed an American visitor about this scandal when they were visiting England, so it was all over the place. He ended up choosing to send all of his work to a tribunal of experts in France to get the final verdict on it, and it was agreed that they were forgeries. That was a bad time for Alger Meadows, I have no doubt. Do you think that some of Elmer Dehore's forgeries might still be in, in private collections and museums today? Definitely. I definitely think so. And there's not a lot of incentive for a museum to out that, even if they know that they have a forgery if they bought it as an original, right? There's no real incentive for them to tell the world, oh, listen, we've been duped. Like, this, is, this isn't what we think it is. Because, well, 
for a lot of reasons that we, I, we can all think of. So I absolutely think that there are forgeries amongst us everywhere. There was a former director of the Metropolitan Museum of Art who used to say that 10 to 40% of the art that he would come across in his role as the director of the Met were fakes. So I think there's a lot of fakes out there in the world. Technology has gotten a lot better and there are there's amazing technology out there that is able to assess whether something is what it's reported to be, but it's very expensive still. So it'd be unrealistic for a museum to test all of its objects. And again, like the incentive to test everything is is just not there. You have an exciting trip planned with Ollie on May 6th through 12th, 2021, called Treasures and Thieves, Tracing Art Crimes Through the Great Museums of Europe. Yes, I'm really excited about it. And I'm optimistic that it's still going to happen and that the, the world will heal by then. But it's three cities, three of my favorite cities for the art crime stories that they were the settings for. So we'll be in Amsterdam, we'll be in Paris, and we'll be in London. And in Amsterdam, we're going to be talking about Rembrandt's The Night Watch, which was the site of many uh, rather violent attempts to destroy it. It's kind of been this beacon for protesters. So there's some interesting stories around that. And then we'll talk about one of my favorite foragers of all time. I think he actually beats out Elmer de Horry on my list of favorite foragers. He is from the Netherlands. So we'll, we'll talk about him. And there's Nazis in that story and drugs. And it's, it's quite a tale. And Amsterdam is just such an amazing city. We're going to be seeing the tulips in all of their glory at Kuchenhof Gardens and going to amazing museums there like the Van Gogh Museum and the Rijksmuseum, some really real gems there in Amsterdam. And then we head over to Paris where we'll be, well, I mean, it's Paris, right? It's the like the world capital of amazing museums. So you can imagine we'll be at the Louvre talking about the theft of the Mona Lisa and trying to catch a glimpse of her. We'll be going out to Chateau Fontainebleau, which is the site of an amazing series of thefts that have been around the world, thefts of Chinese objects from European collections. And nobody has been able to figure out who is doing them. And it involves like rappelling through ceilings and cutting through glass. It's crazy. And then from Paris, we take the channel over to London. And London also has some of my favorite museums in the world. So we'll be at the Tate Modern. We'll be at the National Gallery. There's so many there. It will be impossible to try to, to get to all of them in the time that we have. But we do have a lot of time. And that's one of the things I am excited about with this trip is that it's 12 days, which is a luxurious amount of time. We really wanted there to be, for people to feel like they could settle in and get to know each of these cities. So I'm excited for that. That sounds fantastic and interesting. And doing it with someone like you who knows so much about this, it would be an incredible trip. 
I can't thank you enough for sharing what you know with us today. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. And if anybody knows who stole that Franz Halls painting that we talked about at the beginning of the episode that was just stolen yesterday, let me know. We can get the reward money together. There you go. <laughs> and we'll do a podcast on that one too. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking to you. This has been Susan Supak at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, speaking with Dr. Laura Evans. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.